Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hi, welcome to Hollywood Crime Scene. This is Rachel Fisher. Hi, this is Desi Jadikin. Are you going to do the Patreon? I will do the Patreon. We okay. have a Patreon account, which you can subscribe to, and we offer bonus episodes that are not available on our main feed, as well as ad-free episodes of this show. Yeah. And we do movie recaps on Patreon. You have access to our Discord channel if you join the Patreon. I'm having fun on the Discord. It's, it seems chill. Why is it better than the Facebook? Ugh. Is it just because it's easier to go on it? I don't know what it was. Maybe so, we just don't go on Facebook. and Discord just seems easier to me now. I don't know why. Yeah. We, by the way, somebody, somebody asked today what happened to our Facebook page. We got rid of the Facebook page years ago. Yeah. It was too much work. We couldn't do it. We're not good moderators. We also just aren't on Facebook. And we're not on Facebook. Yeah. So we got rid of the Facebook page. There are some unofficial Facebook groups, I believe. and But we do have a Discord channel, and we have several different topics. If you want to talk about different stuff. Yeah. I'm having fun there. Absolutely. I like it. Anyway, these people went to patreon.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. We're going to give them a shout out. These are our past week subscribers. We have Isolina, Mauricio, Courtney, Trisha, Moni, Ursula, Rob, Tracy, Dana, Jesse, Sarah, Nicole, Sarah, Julia, Chantal, Kat, Sandra, Jacqueline, Melon. Melon, did you join the Patreon? He took your credit card. Melon. <laughs> you little sneak. Shannon, Michelle, Marilyn. Christy, Yvonne, Lindsay, Les, Al, Christine, Amy, Eileen, Jordan, Abigail, Andrea, and Stacy. Thank you so much. Thanks, guys. Okay. <laughs> I don't even know what you're doing. You don't. On January 31st, 2023, so not too long ago, Dr. Phil announced that after 21 years, he would be ending his daytime TV show to pursue new ventures. This announcement prompted a lot of people to have big reactions. Fans were upset, and a lot of people were like, "Good, yeah. fuck him. Yeah. I, I hope he, I hope he goes away faster." <laughs> but he ain't going away. Uh, he released a statement through CBS Media Ventures. In the statement, it said that he will be focusing on primetime programming, and he plans to announce a strategic part, primetime partnership that will be launched in 2024, expanding his reach and increasing his impact on television and viewers. He said, I am compelled to engage with a broader audience because I have grave concerns for the American family, and I am determined to help restore a clarity of purpose as well as our core values. Okay, dude. I'm giving, Dr. My, Phil. I'm giving my Josh Mankiewicz face right now. Yes. 
So we're going to be talking about Dr. Phil. Hell yeah. Does he? <laughs> and is, this, is this the two-parter? Yeah. So this week we'll be learning all about Dr. Phil, how he got to where he was. And next week we will focus on the Dr. Phil show, all the lawsuits and scandals related to that I am show. shaking right now. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe this is happening. I'm so excited. Let's get into it. Yeah. So just a little more of the recap of the intro or to recap Dr. Phil, he came onto the scene as a popular guest on the Oprah Winfrey show. He quickly became a hit with his folksy charm and tell it like it is advice. In 2002, he got his own show, the Dr. Phil show, which was an immediate smash. But what started out as something um, similar to his guest spots on Oprah, basically giving out advice to regular people with regular um, marriage and family type problems, soon devolved into a more Springer-like reality show slash slash advice show hybrid. Um, Things like the teen who claimed she was pregnant with Jesus. Right. That was a topic of uh, conversation one week or one day. More and more people began to question whether Dr. Phil was actually helping these people at all as the show became more and more exploitive. A notable example being when he had a very unwell Shelley Duvall on, mm. seemingly for no other reason than to exploit her struggles for sweep, Sweeps Week. This was a Sweeps Week episode, and we'll talk about this next week. But um, so... <laughs> I was going to say, we got, I, I wrote that, what I said off the cuff, I then wrote, but we'll get to all of that next week. That's why I got thrown off for a second. Um, so yes, this will be a two-part series on Dr. Phil. My source for this book and probably next week as well is um, The Making of Dr. Phil, The Straight Talking True Story of Everyone's Favorite Therapist by Sophia Dembling. And I also will be using a little bit of a story from a Grantland article called But It Did Happen by Brian Phillips. So let's see where this piece of shit came from. (laughs) Or this doctor. On September 1st, 1950, Joe McGraw was about to coach his first football game and his adrenaline was at a peak. Coaching football had been a lifelong dream of his. An hour before the game started, though, his wife, Jerry, went into labor with their third child, their first boy. This is a big deal to someone like Joe, who's like a Texan patriarchal guy to have his first son. So he began fretting over what it would mean for future games when his new baby was born. Like, what am I going to do next week for next week's game? Will I be out all week? Um, But the baby decided to ruin his first game as well. He arrived quickly, just 15 minutes before kickoff. Uh, Jerry gave birth to Dr. Phil. (laughs) (laughs) Did you write that? Yes. He gave, Jerry gave birth to Dr. Phil. He came out with his bald head. (laughs) He had his mustache. His mustache. (laughs) How embarrassing for her. (laughs) Um, so he was basically born into this world before Joe could even get to the hospital, like, He came out that fast after Jerry went into labor. The maternity ward was overflowing in this small Oklahoma town of Vanita, and he spent his first night swaddled in a dresser drawer because they didn't have enough space for him. Now, Vanita is a small but lively town besides being the birthplace of Dr. Phil. Its other claim to fame is being the home to the largest McDonald's in the world. Whoa. Or if it used to be. It was 29,000 square feet, and it was actually built over a bridge above I-44. It's kind of like a huge half circle with a, one wall is all glass windows or glass squares. Um, another 
large McDonald's opened in Moscow in 1990 and it took over the title. <laughs> and some people believe that this McDonald's brought down the fall of the Soviet Union. <laughs> I, just, I just got this information from some random thing about this McDonald's. Now, in addition to coaching football in Vanita at Vanita High School, Joe, who had gone to University of Tulsa, University of Oklahoma at Tulsa, uh, had earned a degree in psychology. He began teaching marriage and family classes at the high school, as well as acting as a guidance counselor. The yearbook described one of his duties as personal problems. Uh, He was known for being tough, but kind-hearted. The family were only there for a few uh, years. Joe was a big proponent of creating your own experience by making decisions and pulling the trigger, which you might recognize as one of Dr. Phil's 10 life laws. He He stole it from his dad. Yes. (laughs) I read them a lot this week. (laughs) Joe did just that when he uprooted his family to take a sales job with an oil equipment company almost out of nowhere. He had no background in this. He just had this opportunity and it made a lot of money and he did it. The family at that point just constantly moved around between Oklahoma, Colorado, and Texas. As the only son, uh, Phil got a lot of leeway. He was basically could do no wrong type thing. And he developed his tell-it-like-it-is style from an early age. At the age of three, he tried to teach one of his grandmothers who was visiting how to turn on the family stove. According to his sister, Dina, he couldn't speak very well. Finally, our grandmother said, son, I can't understand a word you're saying. And Phil said very clearly, what are you, an idiot? Wow. To his grandma. To his grandma? At the age of three. Phil was bored by school and every other extracurricular activity he tried. His only interest was sports and flying. Yes, his his dad would take him flying in like single engine aircrafts at a very young age, even letting him take over the controls. Come on, like as a kid. Um, And he was he flew for a while unlicensed. Doctor Phil, yeah, Doctor Phil. His dad just let him, Um, and it was through flying that he learned you only have yourself to rely on. Okay. You are the most important person in your life. This is also one of his things. (laughs) Another future life coach technique uh, young Phil became a proponent of was mind over matter. Thinking anything was possible if you just put your mind to it. But that that didn't include his uh, own anger issues. Uh, This is one aspect of himself he seems unable to keep uh, in control. And former friends say he doesn't like to be challenged. If you do, he'll get really fucking mean. Wow. Like when his opinion or anything he says is challenged, he doesn't like that. And this will become a thing um, in his career as well. In the second episode, we're going to talk about all the toxic workplace stuff too. Oh, okay. So he's, a, he's not a nice guy. Wow. So if you think he is, I'm here to tell you, nope. <laughs> <laughs> Phil points to one childhood incident as being pivotal Uh, And the fact that it changed his idea of self-concept for the rest of his life. He defended himself against some school bullies. He threw a basketball hard into the head of one of the bullies' faces. All the boys were brought into the principal's office. When Phil saw his favorite teacher, Mrs. Johnson, enter the office, he was sure she would defend him. But instead, she laid into him. She said he was a Mr. Tough Guy who couldn't let anyone like come down on him and he had to prove himself all the time. And it was in that moment he realized life wasn't fair. And once again, the only person who has your back is you. That's, <laughs> I, I don't agree with that. He yelled back at Mrs. Johnson, you're right, I don't, ta- I don't take guff from anyone. And that includes you. 
Wow. He got suspended for three days. <laughs> From that moment on, he said he never wanted to be in any situation where someone could exert authority over him, claiming he only got through the rest of high school because or school because of sports. Things at home were no better. The pressure of the sales job were getting to Joe, um, who began to drink more and more. Phil recalls being disgusted by the changes he witnessed in his father and claimed that that is why he uh, rarely has drunk alcohol his entire adult life. I don't have a problem with that, but I do feel like he has a little, he's got some control issues. <laughs> like he's a pretty controlling person. Uh, and we'll get more into examples of that. Yeah. When the oil industry seemed to be bottoming out, Joe decided to go back to school and get his PhD in psychology so he could become a psychologist. Now the family is like really poor while Joe was going back to school. Everyone had to pitch in financially. Uh, Phil got a like, paper route, paper boy route. And sometimes the family ate mustard and ketchup sandwiches for dinner. Now making matters worse um, for the struggling family is Phil is huge. Huge. He's over six feet tall as like a preteen and he eats a ton of food. Right. So teenagers are hungry in general. In general, they're hungry. He's a really big guy. He's already over six feet tall. He gets to six, four, I think. So he's totally huge and he his sister said he could sometimes eat three foot long chili dogs from uh sonic i I could too (laughs) to be honest uh sometimes he didn't even care if he didn't have money he would go to the store and get like a pound of fried gizzards and eat them while they were shopping so that when they got to check out he didn't have to pay for them this was another pivotal event for phil who vowed he would never be poor again and a major drive for phil throughout his life is earning a ton of money like he is obsessed with always finding ways to make the most amount of money. So uh, Phil is extremely close with his dad, but they also have a very complicated relationship. They argue constantly. Both are incredibly stubborn and kind of insufferable. People are always describing them both as the kind of person you either love or hate. So this is when Dr. Phil is a teenager. Yes. They're already saying, oh, he's a... His dad's a little shit, but so's the son. Yeah, they're both kind of know-it-alls. Like, Ugh. and just like, you know, I mean, it's not like surprising, but this is not a guy who was like, oh, he was so shy. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, interestingly enough, Phil will never speak about any conflict from his childhood ever. Well, maybe he should look at that. Uh, well, it's against his philosophy. According to a former colleague, he doesn't believe in inner child work, healing things that happened when you were a child in order to appro- improve your adult life. Hmm. Rather than thinking um, buried feelings never die and you need to deal with them, he just buries them and is um, unknowingly still dealing with them, according to this uh, former colleague. I don't think that's healthy. <laughs> this is something he basically will encourage in people to this day. Really? Yes. So when Joe began working with patients, he really does seem to have um, found this perfect fit for him. Patients actually love him. He is very caring, but does also have a no-nonsense style. His skill at coaching football translated well into coaching patients through their personal um, problems. And people really love the way Joe could turn a phrase into like uh, a saying. He would make common sense really colorful. Some of his phrases, they're ones that Dr. Phil uses, including worrying is like rocking in a chair. It's something to do, but you don't get anywhere. And don't let your alligator mouth overload your hummingbird ass. Whoa. Wait, what does that mean? <laughs> I think if you have a big, you're all talk, but then you're going to get your ass kicked because you're actually a pussy. I don't know. Is that what that means? I think so. Your ass is vibrating? 
Well, yeah. I mean, you're you're like a little wimpy bird. Yeah. But you have a big old tough guy mouth. Right. Maybe? right. I don't know. I have no idea. Is that like talk shit, get hit? Yeah, basically. I think so. <laughs> he does. <laughs> Dr. Phil does love a little phrase. Oh, he's that's his thing. Yeah. But a lot of this is from his dad. Uh, so Phil's interest in I'm sorry, interest in psychology, yeah, began due to his love of football. He became obsessed with winners and what makes certain people succeed over Joe's? others. No, Phil. Phil, Phil also. also becomes interested in psychology, but it's mainly because of football. Okay. He becomes obsessed with winners and what makes certain people succeed over others who might technically have an advantage on paper. So he's like, what is in the mind that makes certain, some people succeed and some not? He says he started studying success at this age, like just in general of people. Um, when people began running, I'm um, sorry, when Phil began running with a rough crowd, Joe decided to bring his son with him to Kansas City as he finished his psychology internship period. Phil was just 16. And as I mentioned, he's already at this point now he's six four, So he's fully his full grown height. Um, but he's not the big man on the campus at his high school. He was so unmemorable, in fact, that a lot of people would later find it hard to believe they went to school with the Dr. Phil. He even went to like a, an, a like, high school reunion shortly before he really took off and they didn't even remember him from that much like later in life phil star rose when he hooked up with a more popular woman (laughs) (laughs) this uh woman was head cheerleader cheerleader and future homecoming queen debbie higgins Outside of the football team, the only other notable thing Dr. Phil did was participate in a mock trial that people, students, some students he uh, did it with kind of remember him from. He was the prosecutor, and the student who was the defense attorney recalled seeing glimpses of the Dr. Phil we know today. This guy said, as the trial went on, the fellow I had was a very bad witness. Phil got him on the stand and tore him up. As a last-ditch strategy, this guy switched his client's plea to insanity, and the jury voted not guilty. Phil was livid. This guy said he was jumping up and down. He thought he had won, and when he lost the case, he was just madder than a wet hen. He was intense. Intense is the word. He just had this intuitiveness, and he couldn't accept defeat. At a mock trial. At a mock trial. It was also during high school he came up with another of his life laws. You either get it, or you don't. <laughs> <laughs> There's two types of people in this world, Rachel. Ones who get it and ones who don't. Okay. This is the story that inspired this, which is a really weird way of seeing things. But I'll tell you. When he and a group of boys were pulled over for speeding uh, by a police officer, one of the guys ran off. The cop asked for that guy's name. And the first boy he asked said the guy's name was Sam Sausage. And the cop <laughs> slapped him. The second boy said, I don't know his name, but I know it's not Sam Sausage. And the cop respected that. And this was a life lesson for Dr. Phil. Now, I'd what, like to add that wait. you can get it and still be brutalized by a cop. Like, I don't know what that lesson necessarily is. Now, besides sports, his other main obsession in high school, as I mentioned earlier, was Debbie Higgins. In fact, Phil was described as a possessive boyfriend. They would have this relationship where they would fight and break up and get back together. And no one dared ask Debbie out during a breakup period or they would face Phil's wrath. Debbie was the opposite of Phil. She was very good natured and popular. So it was definitely an an opposite to track type situation. Now, post high school, Debbie and Phil went to different schools. She went to Missouri State, and he went to the University of Oklahoma at Tulsa, but they kind of remained a long-distance couple. 
Once again, at University of Oklahoma, he was not a great student. He was on a football scholarship, and football was his focus. He was a middle linebacker for the Golden Hurricane. Is that like a golden shower <laughs> after a night of drinking beer? <laughs> like, what is the Golden Hurricane? That's like the most extreme golden shower Absolutely. that you can do. Well, Dr. Phil played for that. <laughs> Played for that entity. We're going to get emails from Golden Hurricane fans. Look, you know this it's funny. Scary. You know it's funny, my Oklahoma fans. Yeah, we love <laughs> listeners. you. Um, so this team sucked. I don't know what they are now, but back then, this is a fact. Their record was terrible. They were not a good team this year. But this, uh, <laughs> there was a notable story about his college football days. Phil was part of one of the most infamous games in NCAA history, Tulsa versus Houston. Uh, So this is the story I found in Grantland that I mentioned up top. When Tulsa arrived at the Astrodome to play the Houston Cougars, 15 of their 22 starters had come down with the flu. They were shivering and feverish. Were they shitting and vomiting? Well, it wasn't mentioned in the article, but we can only imagine. <laughs> Maybe they don't, they don't get the details like we get. Right. We would have found out these details. I, yes. Um, but the coach refused to cancel the game despite the doctor's pleas that these people could not fucking play a football game. Uh, a fan who was in the stands said, I had never seen a team play with less energy, speed, strength, or drive. On the sidelines, players were packed in ice to get their temperatures down. They somehow managed to score one touchdown in the first half, but the game was 24-6 at halftime. Then things got really bad. Houston scored 76 more points. What? And the game ended with a score of 100 to 6. Oh, God. It's one of the most embarrassing defeats <laughs> in college football. Why did they make them play? These kids were all sick. All sick. That's crazy. Now, Phil famously told this story on a David Letterman appearance. And the funny thing is, according to this Grantland article, that there's no record of him actually being at this game. What? So this guy who wrote the article is like, why would he lie about being part of something so like embarrassing, kind of like, yeah, I was on that team. But it's like, it's such a weird story to lie about. Yeah. But there's no, he like did research. He's like, it's, it's hard to like nail down a hundred percent because there's not as much information like yeah. there is today, Yeah, but there's no record of him being on like the list of players, like in a game, like there's no record of him making a play or doing anything in this game. They don't have a list of the roster for that, no. for that year. They do, but he's not on it. But that doesn't mean it's accurate because things like that can change. I think, um, during a game, like That's maybe someone's brought in. Yeah. So this guy thought it was kind of interesting, so I'm bringing that up. But I thought that was funny <laughs> story about the football loss. Um, so his football clear was short-lived, though, because after this, he got hit so hard on the field at some point that he was left partially blind. Wow. Now, according to Phil, he studied optic nerve damage textbooks and treated himself eventually regaining full sight. He I don't know if that's true. <laughs> I don't know if that's another tall tale. He, he did mantras yeah. in the mirror. Or maybe it just got better. Because sometimes yeah. that happens when you're temporarily, you can temporarily lose vision, right? I mean, um, yeah. So he drops out of school and moves back to Texas where he begins working in fitness clubs. Here his entrepreneurial and sales skills really shine. He is an expert at selling people memberships. And soon he had a stake in the club. Now this is like, 
we're all familiar with fitness clubs now. This is like new yeah. when he's doing this. This was not a thing that existed. I think you had like YMCAs and stuff like that. But these sort of like fitness clubs was a new thing in the 70s. He eventually convinces Debbie to move down to Lubbock to be near him. And she did. The day she moved down, a tornado struck the town they li- they lived in, killing 26 people and oh injuring 1,500. Something Debbie says now was an ominous sign of things to come in their relationship. Six months later, they married. Isn't that crazy? That's so scary. Now, Debbie says although he was an affectionate and attentive boyfriend, as a husband, he almost immediately began freezing her out both emotionally and verbally, never saying I love you or even talking to her when he came home from work. He would just be in silence the whole night. He expected her to be the stereotypical homemaker, taking care of him and looking good, even making her lift weights to bulk up her chest. This that, guy's a sick puppy. That's not how it works, Dr. Phil. No. We all <laughs> She's doing the we must, we must increase yeah, our yeah, bus yeah. exercises. Uh, that's not how you do it. Get this, her a boob job. <laughs> this guy, I'm sure there's more to come down the pipe. Pike? Whatever. But this guy is like an example of someone who has all sorts of advice for everybody else, but his own house is not in order. Oh, he's the worst. Of That's like him to a T. Yeah. She tells a story that illustrates how any conversation that they would have relied on her starting it. In the book, she uh, says that they were taking a plane ride to Topeka from Wichita Falls for a family weekend. He was obviously flying them in his little fucking airplane. Um, she was so fed up with this lack of communication in their relationship, she decided to test him and see if he he ever starts a conversation with her without her doing it first. So she is completely silent during this plane trip. He doesn't say a word. Uh, when they get to Wichita Falls, they he said hello to the family. He got They got back to their cabin. He still didn't say a word. And on the flight back, not one word to her. What so this whole dick. fucking thing, she said, that's how a bad marriage goes bad. They beat you down, beat you down, and you start to question yourself. Phil was also cheating on Debbie. So he would bring women back to their home. And when she finally confronted him about it, he said, don't take it personally. Oh, <laughs> are you kidding me? Don't, don't let your hummingbird ass. <laughs> Can you believe this guy? The marriage was annulled in December of 73. It would be three decades later that Debbie would finally reveal the hell that was her her marriage. I'll get more into it later. But people don't even know that he was married before Robin. Yeah. Because it's Robin who was always on the show, his wife, and they've been married a long time. But it's kind of shocking to even find out he had this first um, marriage. Um, Well, maybe we should take a break here. Okay, let's take a break. Yeah. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Another thing that ends around this time, Dr. Phil's fitness industry career. 
at this point he had, um, or sorry, at some point he and his dad opened up something called the Grecian Health Spa in Wichita that ends in complete disaster. They actually have to file for bankruptcy and and left a huge amount of debt, including an unpaid lease, as well as members, um, many of whom had bought a lifetime membership (gasps) that basically amounted to uh, nothing. So they had paid this, ex- I think it was like $600 for a lifetime membership that they didn't even get to use for really a year. Did they get reimbursed? No. That's they they basically lost all of that money and they just left town rather than deal with the consequences of people being angry at them. Uh, he went, they went back to Texas and he actually faced the possibility of fraud charges, but ultimately it was just a business run really badly. He didn't know what the fuck he was doing. He was able to sell these memberships, but this spa was never even fully operational. It was like a promise of things to come. Wow. So it was like an unintentional scam. Like he wasn't trying to scam these people. He thought he was going to make a successful business, but that's sort of what happened. He eventually joins his dad in Wichita Falls, where Joe is now a full-time psychologist with his own practice. And Joe wants to start a father-son practice. And Phil was finally encouraged enough to go back to school and earn a degree. He never graduated from college. So he's still like not, he doesn't even have a, um, what is it called? A bachelor's? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I love your like, what's it called? I love that you're like, he didn't even go to college. Like we went to college. Yeah. I'm disgusted. (laughs) I didn't even get his GED. We, yeah, Desi and I just bar- both barely graduated high school. But there may have been another reason he agreed to stay in Wichita Falls. He had met a young woman named Robin Jameson. That's Robin. We all know her from the show, if you've seen the show. For the first time in his life, he really thrived in school, especially when he began his graduate work. His personal life was going well, too. He married Robin in 1977. And he just kept working. He was he was doing this really fast. Like he finished like his undergrad in like two years instead of three. Like he was really on the fast track because he was motivated now. In May of 1979, he was officially Dr. Phil. He got his PhD. Um, his dad's dream of a father-son practice became a reality. So as I mentioned earlier about this, um, his lack of like thinking, <laughs> the, the fact that he doesn't think childhood trauma affects you as an adult, I, or or maybe he thinks it affects you, but it doesn't matter anymore, like get over it kind of stuff. Yeah. He specializes in cognitive behaviorism, and this is a, tro- a pr- approach that treats thinking patterns and behaviors they trigger. So he says, people would come in and say, I had a hard childhood, therefore I am not doing well as an adult. A Freudian would say, let's work through your childhood. I would say, that's fine, but right now you are an adult and you have a choice to stop yelling at your kids. Unlike his dad, Phil was not a natural with patients in like a one-on-one setting. Uh, He says, he's quoted in this book as saying, oh my God, I got so tired of listening to people whine, I could scream. (gasps) I mean, I'd come in, a couple would sit down in front of me and start bitching and whining and like 10 minutes into it, I'm thinking, my God, I can't stand either one of you. No wonder you can't get along. So he's not an ideal therapist. (laughs) He's He's like your worst nightmare to have as a therapist where like, you you're your therapist's least favorite patient. Yes. And you're you like if you were paranoid, oh my therapist hates me. Yeah. But I he mean, hates all of his patients. Yes. I mean, I would def this is why I can't be a therapist. I know myself. <laughs> <laughs> I know I'd get annoyed with certain people. There's no way you can't unless you're like a saint, right? 
like if that's your job, you have to be objective. Yeah. I mean, I, I would feel bad for people, but I would also probably be annoyed with certain I people. I mean, therapists are only human, but I right. do believe that that there is a skill to being, obviously there's a skill to being a therapist and you would hope that your therapist is able to have empathy for all their patients yeah, to some degree or at least. Um, well, you know. I think so. I agree. And a lot of people became therapists yeah. too, I think during this period. And really, uh, but yeah. So, I mean, some people liked his style because yeah. he's very like what he was, what we saw on TV, that was him like this, tell it like it is. And, and sometimes you do need someone to tell you, set you straight or I'm, whatever. I mean, I do personally like a little bit of that tough love for lack of a better word, but it needs to be backed up by caring by real care and an actual love being the operative word. Absolutely. Now, some people found him to be very self-absorbed and unhelpful though, including this woman named Peggy Anderson. She went to Dr. Phil to deal with, the pain that she was experiencing after her son uh, killed himself. And she says Dr. Phil was not helpful. She said, there were days when I was really suffering and I felt like it was too painful for me to talk about it. So I just turned the conversation um, to Dr. Phil because he always wanted to talk about himself. You're kidding So me. that's how, and she's like, and if you've ever been to counseling, a good counselor will usually say, well, we're not here to talk about me. We're here to talk about you. But he didn't do that. So she would use his narcissism to basically get out of talking about her own painful uh, feelings. What? And he went along with it. Now, <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. I can't get over that. Isn't that crazy? I mean, it's crazy also that the patients were so aware of how to manipulate him in a way. I have never in my life had a therapist who like talked about themselves like that. No, it's crazy. Like maybe you get someone relating a personal story in a very vague way. It's a one-off line. A one-off line. It's not a long story. Yeah. No. So that's what she would do to get out of it. It was through his work as a psychologist that he realized his true talent lied in negotiating. For instance, with one client who was uh, seeing him to deal with the pain of a divorce, he actually gave her a lot of help negotiating her divorce settlement from her husband and got her... She ended up getting like a really great settlement. Maybe he should have been a divorce attorney. Maybe. Sorry. Um, So soon he was helping a man named Eldon Box renegotiate some bank loans successfully. And he was really beginning to see that there um, there was more money in fields related to psychology than there was in actually being a doctor. It was through Eldon Box that Phil became acquainted with his mother, Thelma Box, which is a pretty good drag name. That is a good drag name. The, I, when I heard that, I was like, ooh, Thelma Box. Like, Thelma that's cool. Box. I love that name. So Phil really liked Thelma. She was a very successful businesswoman. She had her hands in a lot of different uh, ventures, including real estate. And he was always pitching ideas to her about how they could kind of work together. Um, so he also saw her as someone who had a similar work ethic to himself, um, but she constantly declined these offers because she was really busy with her own sh- own shit, and they maintained a friendship. Thelma was an early proponent of the burgeoning uh, self-help movement. That was really taking off in the 80s, uh, this particular style. She took numerous self-improvement seminars by people like Dale Carnegie and Zig Ziglar. She finally saw a money-making opportunity for her and Phil to go into in on together 
uh, she came up with this idea for personal growth seminars for single moms, thinking that that's a group of people who really need some help and bolstering their self-esteem to kind of make the best life for themselves. Phil knew it was going to be a guaranteed guaranteed success. And he got um, her to expand the seminar to everyone, not just single moms, believing that they could come up with a program that kind of benefited all types of people. Thelma recognized that Phil's magnetic personality was a key to the success of this venture and decided that she would be behind the scenes creating the program and all the tools and all the fucking worksheets and all of that stuff while he would be the front man. After nine months of working on this program and kind of getting it finalized, Thelma gets a call from Phil saying that he wanted his father brought into the venture, making it a three-way split rather than 50-50. If you give a mouse a cookie... (laughs) Seriously. And Thelma is like, what? Because she knew this would mean Phil would pretty much have all the control uh, at that point. He says to her, when she sort of balked at this idea and said she didn't want to bring the dad in, he told her she could take the deal or they would do it without her. (gasps) So at that point, she basically had no choice because she knew that his persona was like a key element and that she was replaceable and he wasn't. So she went along with it and they established You Seminars, Inc., The first seminar was in March of 83, and it incorporated a structure created by Thelma that would eventually be known as Pathways. While this was initially going to be a side hustle for both of them, it eventually became a full-time venture because it was so fucking successful. By the late 1980s, more than 1,000 people annually were paying $1,000 to attend this seminar uh, that they called The Weekend, like it was this weekend thing. That's a million dollars a year in the late 80s. So that's a lot of money. Wow. But the partnership was strained because Phil was an asshole and difficult to deal with. According to Thelma, uh, she said uh, an example of his difficult ways and manner was actually something that got in the way of his first shot at Hollywood. Television producers came to Wichita Falls with the idea of filming the seminar and trying to figure out a way to make it into a TV show. She says they came in and did some filming and all that. I don't know if this is the truth, but I heard that Phil was so difficult to work with, they didn't want to be a part of it anymore after dealing with him. Now, all this time, Phil and his dad had kept their psycholo- um, sorry, psychology licenses up to date, even though they weren't practicing uh, in private practice anymore. But in 1987, Joe was before the State Board of Examiners of Psychologists due to a complaint. And he basically said, well, I'm not, I don't need my license anymore, so take it. I don't feel like dealing with this kind of thing. <laughs> so the complaint was just dropped. Did he keep the doctor? Uh, I don't know. Well, Dr. Phil did. I know he did. <laughs> um, so Dr. Phil, he was also brought before the board shortly after the dad was. And this was a much more serious complaint. So according to the book, uh, a 19-year-old woman who was in treatment with uh, Dr. Phil from about June of 1984 through August of 19. 19- 84 lodged a complaint with him from um, with the Texas State Board of Examiners Examiners of Psychologists. The complaint accused him of unprofessional conduct of having an inappropriate dual relationship with his female patient. <gasps> According to the documents, the problem was possible failure to provide proper separation between termination of therapy and the initiate, initiation of employment. He was her therapist and he also was her boss. He hired <gasps> her to work in the office. So 
The whispers, though, went beyond this complaint, of course. Um, A lot of people also had heard rumors that there was a sexual thing between the patient and Dr. Fell. Uh, She actually says to a magazine that he pulled her down to sit in his lap while he was talking on the phone with patients and other doctors, even with his wife. He'd reach in her blouse and touch her breast, and he liked to rub her legs as well as her pelvic bone. Another article featured anonymous quotes from this uh, same woman. She says, I was emotionally abused as a child and suffered from really low self-esteem, explaining why she kind of fell for his whatever creepiness. Um, She also accused him of becoming overly involved, always uh, grilling her for information about her life. Like if she was depressed or anxious, he was always like, you need to call me anytime you have any feelings. I need to be the one uh, that you call. I'm the only one who can fix you, which kept her totally dependent on him. Now, he obviously denies any sexual misconduct on his part and insists that um, he was only seeing this woman because the family requested, uh, they like paid him secretly to treat her. Um, and that was, he says, that's why she was mad that she learned that the family, uh, was involved and she took exception to that. Um, and he said, no good deed goes unpunished basically. He also said in a TV guide, um, interview, I have never so much as patted this woman on the back. It was absolutely and totally false and it was fully investigated and dismissed. He says he took a lie detector test that cleared him but he doesn't remember the name of the person who administered the test or have like any record of taking the test. But Phil was only too happy to leave his private practice as well. Um, in addition to Pathways, his sidekick as a courtroom expert witness was really becoming a thing he was doing a lot. So It sounds like this guy, like you can just tell, he just loves the spotlight. He doesn't love the... He doesn't love like helping people and transforming lives. He likes being the center of attention. Yeah, and even when he is sort of on the Oprah show later on, it's like he is like, it's like his persona, it's like you don't have that type of persona if you don't love being the center of attention. It's like there's definitely an aspect about his help that is about him. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Um, So in 1990, along with a lawyer named Gary Dobbs, Phil took his little side gig as a courtroom expert witness up a notch and started a trial consulting firm called CSI. Courtroom Science Incorporated. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So this is like, this is actually kind of an interesting field to me. I find it very interesting. Uh, So they do things like provide expert witness, obviously. They find people expert witnesses. They basically produce like a defense attorney's case from top to bottom, Mm -hmm. including jury selection. So Dr. Phil whatever you think about him, he is very skilled at reading people and he was very good at his job working in this, this area. He was able to understand jurors' mindsets and their motivation and he would create these very effective voir dires. Um, and then he would do additional research uncovering jurors' pre-existing beliefs in order to kind of predict how they might find a case, you know, in the, in the end. And he also would prepare witnesses for testimony. And this was something he was really good at. Even down the line, uh, he'll do it with Oprah. Yeah. He knew how to prepare a witness. He said, we don't coach them. Um, 
to tell, say something, but we teach them how to tell the truth effectively. That's how his ex- explanation for what he did. He becomes obsessed with this business and he's less and less interested in the pathways self-help thing. Uh, a man named Steve Davidson was regularly filling in for Phil at that point. And Thelma was really hoping to buy Phil's shares out uh, and end the partnership. What she didn't know was that Phil had already sold his shares to Steve Davidson without telling her. <gasps> Not only that, he would eventually sell Joe's shares to another investor, leaving Thelma on the outs once again when the new one owners basically wanted to use her to learn everything and then push her out. Damn. So... She eventually does sell her third of the stake in Pathways and starts her own self-help company that is pretty successful. But she's obviously super bitter about this and thinks Phil is an egomaniacal asshole. Um, In the book, she is quoted as saying, the truth is I probably got more benefit associating with him than most people did. I don't want to be misleading about that. My life has been great because Phil McGraw was in it. And I think if he were honest, he'd say the same about me. So... CSI is massively successful, and it's mostly due to Phil's talent and dedication to being the best. But while Phil was having the time of his life in his new career, the people who worked for him found the job incredibly taxing. The workplace was toxic because Phil was an asshole. His verbal assaults would leave employees feeling battered and abused, some joking that they had an informal support group for surviving his tirades. After someone said that in the book, another person's like, it wasn't informal. We had a support <laughs> group. Um, but they still really loved the work and knew working for Phil was an invaluable education. One employee described it as, he's like an abusive husband. You love him and he's so nice and he's great, but he just beats you up every once in a while, but you keep going back to him. <laughs> so awful. Um, some attorneys, uh, another employee was like, some attorneys have one or two cases that are sort of cases of a lifetime. At Courtroom Sciences, every attorney was working on their case of a lifetime. So you always had these incredibly interesting and challenging cases. And this was the case for a Dallas attorney named Chip Babcock, Babcock who came to CSI with his case of a lifetime. On April 19, 1996, the Oprah Winfrey Show aired a show titled Dangerous, Dangerous Foods, This was at the height of the panic regarding mad cow disease. One of her guests was a man named Howard Lyman, a former rancher turned vegetarian who was now in charge of basically running these campaigns to promote a meat-free existence. He said that an epidemic of mad cow disease would make AIDS look like the common cold. He then went on to describe this almost cannibalistic process of feeding these diseased cows to other cows that would then be sold for human consumption, something that disgusted the audience and Oprah. She said she was, in that moment, stopped cold from eating another burger, and the audience was cheering with approval, like them too. Now, someone who was not cheering with approval was a Texas cattleman named Paul Engler who was watching the show in his hotel room. He was not happy. When Cattle Futures plummeted shortly after this episode aired, it was referred to as the Oprah crash. Wow. (laughs) Now, he owned a cattle company called Cactus Feeders. He initiates a lawsuit against Oprah Winfrey, Howard Lyman, and Harpo Productions, citing the False Disparagement of Perishable Foods Products Act. This act bars the vilification of perishable food products without scientific proof. 
And he was suing her for $12 million plus punitive damages. And that's where the big money comes from, the punitive damages. He was accusing Winfrey of lambasting the American cattle industry and estimated that his company had lost $7 million in the aftermath of her show. Oprah hires the lawyer I mentioned earlier, Chip Babcock, to defend her because he's a First Amendment specialist and she's taking the the, um, defense that this is a First Amendment issue. When the trial was set to be held in Amarillo, cattle country, uh, Oprah and Chip knew they were in big trouble. And that's when Chip brought in CSI and Phil McGraw. So this was a case that Phil took on personally. He was going to be in charge of everything, be the contact and do everything. Of course, because as you said, it's going to get him a lot of attention. Yeah. He tells a story um, about meeting Oprah for the first time. He goes in, meets one of her assistants, and she said that he could have one hour uh, with Oprah. He said, excuse me, it isn't my ass being sued. If that's all the time she's got, then I don't want to be a part of this. Winfrey agrees to meet with Phil and give him all the time he need, and then they bond in this uh, session. He said in the first three minutes that they were just besties. <laughs> <laughs> So the trial is a massive media spectacle. Not only is it just major news that Oprah is being sued, um, she's also filming her show at a local theater in Amarillo, the entire run of the trial. She even has celebrity guests constantly coming into town, including Patrick Swayze, who appears on the first Amarillo show, giving her a cowgirl starter kit. Dr. Phil was at the trial every day taking notes, and no one knew who he was. They're like, who's that big bald guy <laughs> with Oprah every day yeah. uh, at the trial? Cause it's not, it's clearly not her attorney, but he's right there always talking to her, uh, etc. By this point, Oprah is completely mesmerized by Dr. Phil. She, he like really coaches her through everything. And according to her, let her find her way back to her authentic self. Uh, one of B- Oprah's big problems was that she was really defensive. Mm. So when they did these mock trials with her and had her on the stand, she came off sort of incredulous that anyone was coming after her. Yeah. And he was like, no, you gotta, you can't do that because it just comes off like you're snobby and think you're better than everyone, that kind of stuff. So he kind of helps her, um, you know, be a good witness. At the end of the six-week trial, the jury decides against the cattlemen ruling in favor of Winfrey. um, And... Winfrey and Babcock quickly credit him for the contributions to the defense as why they succeeded. Uh, Babcock says, without Phil on the Oprah case, I'm not sure we would have prevailed. And Oprah was not done with Phil yet. She wanted to share her guru with the world. So shortly after the trial ends, she really wants him to be a guest on her show. According to Phil, one day she said, you know what? You don't have the right to not be sharing your perspective and what you know. I know you don't like it, but you don't have the right to do that. I want you to share it with people. Oh, no. It was, I think you have something to say, and I have a great place to say it. It was kind of a free fall. Let's do this and see where it goes. This is Dr. Phil's version of what happened. I just love Wait, it. that's what he said that she said? To yes, him? that's what that's what Phil says Oprah said to him. Like, how do you say that about yourself? Like, oh my God. With a straight face. I have no idea. So he's going to soon make his debut appearance on the Oprah Winfrey show. And that's where we're going to end. 
Next week, we will get into those appearances, the making and creation of the Dr. Phil show, and all the shit that went on with that show. God, I just remember first seeing him, because my mother watched Oprah every single day. I mean, I definitely watched Oprah. Yeah. I don't know if I watched it every single day, but it was like, you turn it on after school. That's what I'm saying. Do you know what I mean? (laughs) But but because it was after school, because it was a 4 p.m. show. Yes. So I would always watch it with my mother. And I remember Dr. Phil and being like, "Who? who's this guy? Well, and I remember first seeing him too. And there was something sort of appealing about his style because he would find these people who wouldn't admit to things and get them to admit to it. Yeah. And it was something where you're like, oh, damn. Like, yeah, it's, people, you have to admit to things before you can change. It, it's not surprising that he became a phenomenon. No, because I think it's what people needed I think during that period of time. Yeah, I mean and it it was certainly a, a, a it seemed like a fresh exciting approach and to have him on the Oprah Winfrey show this guy who was like so no nonsense but and very different than Oprah. Very different than Oprah. Uh so I mean, I think he would come on like once a week. That's my memory and then it probably started happening more and more. Uh, yeah. But no, it was like every Tuesday or something. Yeah. He would come on and it was like it was really an organic um, career building. Like people wanted it; they, they loved, loved when he came him. on. And then I was like, "Of course, he has his own show eventually, right? Uh, why? St- why would he not? Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's like where everyone had a fucking show, right? Um, but- I mean, Oprah really she made so many careers. Oh my god! Even like beyond the ones that are obvious, like him and Doctor Oz. Even just like books she would pick. She was such a like influence on culture for yeah. all of that period. One of, of time. my like, one of my childhood best friends, her mom went on Oprah <gasps> in the mid nineties because she was a pajama designer and her pajamas blew up. Oh damn! Yeah, yeah, no, or like the gifts that she would give out. Yes, and that like yes, yeah. her favorite. No, things. she liked something. Forget it. You were like set for life. Yeah, um, yeah. So that's Doctor Phil's start. Wow. I'm looking forward. Next week's going to be juicy. Are we going to talk about Cash Me Outside? Oh, absolutely. Okay, I mean, good. <laughs> next week we're going to discuss um, how he got his own show. We're going to talk about all of the scandals and lawsuits, um, some of the infamous guests, including <laughs> Danielle Brigoli, a.k.a. Bad Baby. Uh, her show, by the way, <laughs> the episode she was on was called I want to give up my car stealing, knife wielding, twerking 13 year old daughter who tried to frame me for a crime. <laughs> Amazing. Not exactly a catchy title, but a, an incredible one. I mean, that's like a Maury level. Yeah, there's a lot with her. Bad actually. baby. Yeah. So yeah. that'll be a nice little chunk because I that story it. is uh, awful. Um, okay. All right. Well, we're going to do our after show, which is available on our Patreon. And we will see you all in a few days for the mini episode. Bye. Bye. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com.